The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, November 16th. I'm Aaron Schachter. Palestinian militants fire rockets at Jerusalem for the first time. This BBC reporter in Gaza saw one of them go off. That rocket, we believe, was launched right in front of my eyes, heading in the direction of Jerusalem. And within minutes, we had reports of the sirens going off in the Jerusalem area. And later, how a Twitter hashtag is helping to save a bankrupt soccer team in Spain. And the whole thing snowballed and created a degree of interest in the club that I think, in truth, none of us could ever have expected. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups like the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. And by PBS, presenting The Dust Bowl, a new film from director Ken Burns. Starts Sunday at 8, 7 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The conflict between Israel and the Palestinians reached Jerusalem today. A rocket fired from the Gaza Strip flew about 45 miles to hit a settlement just south of the city. There are no reports of casualties, but sirens wailed across the holy city and sent people scurrying for cover. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem says it's the first rocket attack on the city since 1970. This is a big deal. It's no surprise that militants in Gaza have rockets with that kind of range, uh, but it is a surprise to a lot of people that they would be fired at Jerusalem, which Israel considers its capital. It's also where the third holiest Muslim site is uh, in the world. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and Dome of the Rock. This is something that even Saddam Hussein did not do in 1991, target Jerusalem. Uh, How are people there reacting? Shocked? Frightened? Blasé? I think a lot of people are surprised, Aaron. You know, of course, this is a place that's been hit with uh, terrorist attacks before. But um, I was in Tel Aviv this afternoon when this happened, and I saw I saw the news first on Twitter. And of course, uh, the first thing I did was call my wife, who was back here in in Jerusalem, where I am now. Um, got on the phone with her, and she told me that she was with her kids in the park when they heard the siren go off. Another woman in the park said, oh, don't worry, it's just the the Shabbat siren, which uh, goes off on Friday evenings to signal the the beginning of the Sabbath. Uh, But then another woman said, no, 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 it's not the the Shabbat siren. Uh, And my wife realized it wasn't, so she got the kids as quickly as she could and started coming back to the house. And before they got back, they could hear the boom. And uh, she said it was it was clearly scary, uh, and, and there was sort of a sense in the park of just just real confusion about about what to do because this has never happened before. At the same time, uh, my wife said that there were several people that just sat there, continued with their uh, with their late afternoon lunch, um, as if nothing was happening. Now, this comes a day after Hamas hit the Tel Aviv region, which is why you were in Tel Aviv this afternoon. Um, surely this means an escalation by Israel. They have to respond in kind. Any idea what's in the works? 
That's expected. Uh, the news that's come in late today is that the defense ministry is evidently calling up 75,000 reservists. I think that sends a message. Uh, there are reports that there are troops and armor and equipment moving toward the border with Gaza. That doesn't mean that Israel wants to launch uh, the kind of ground incursion that it did four years ago into the Gaza Strip. Uh, but I talked to some security experts today who said the wheels start turning, and in some ways uh, the, the effort to send a message to the other side that Israel is willing to put troops on the ground and go back into Gaza uh, could be a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Uh, even if Israel doesn't want to do it, they could end up getting sucked into that kind of conflict. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. There's speculation that the rocket fired at Jerusalem today was an Iranian-made Fajr 5 missile. That's a large rocket, more than 20 feet in length. The BBC's John Donison in Gaza says the use of such a large weapon is a sign of an upgraded Hamas arsenal. It's a first, certainly as far as I can remember, and that rocket, uh, we believe, was launched right in front of uh, my eyes, about 500 metres from where I'm standing now. Uh, we saw certainly the largest missile I've been seen fired out of Gaza in recent days heading in the direction of Jeru Jerusalem, and within minutes we had reports of the sirens going off in the Jerusalem area, and we now understand, as you know, that that uh, rocket appears to have landed just outside Jerusalem. Now, uh, this is certainly, to use the words of uh, Israel's prime minister, crossing a red line. And uh, as you say, a red line that hasn't been crossed before. Uh, they must be expecting some kind of retaliation there in, in Gaza. Are, are people preparing for that? I think they will be, yes. And we've had an extremely busy day here in Gaza with airstrikes throughout the day. Uh, all day we've had the thuds of explosions, uh, plumes of black smoke coming up around the Gaza Strip, shaking the building from where I'm speaking now. And at the same time, uh, as I was saying, we've seen rockets being fired in the other direction. At this point, it seems increasingly likely that a ground incursion is coming from the Israeli army. I imagine that's a daunting prospect. Uh, citizens there must be pretty concerned about that. Lots of people are very worried here when you speak to Palestinians. Yes, I was speaking to one father this morning with his two children clutching uh, around his waist, and he was saying he spent the night, you know, huddled in his house. All the windows in his building were blown out by an airstrike that landed just 20, 30 metres from his apartment and, uh, yeah, a lot of people are very worried. And the prospects of a ground invasion, I think, uh, of real concern uh, now. Of course, uh, Israel had a ground operation during the war here almost four years ago. And then we had 1,400 Palestinians killed as well as around a dozen Israelis. And is there anything people can do to prepare for this sort of thing, practically speaking? Is there anywhere to go? I think they stay indoors. I think people try and go underground if they can, if they've got anywhere they can go underground. They they don't uh, go up on the top floors. They keep off the streets. They keep off the roofs. Um, and they try and go in what's the most secure room in their house. Uh, there aren't uh, bunkers here, shelters for ordinary people. I think Hamas uh, has bunkers where many of its leaders will be. Uh, but most people just get by the best they can. The BBC's John Donison in Gaza. Egypt's prime minister visited the Palestinian territory today, and while still in Gaza, he pledged his country's support for the Palestinian people. 
Prime Minister Hisham Kandil said Egypt will exert every effort to stop the aggression and achieve a sustainable truce. This is a tragedy we can't remain silent about, said Kandil. The entire world should be responsible regarding this aggression. Reporter Noel King is in Cairo. Noel, this is a huge turnaround for Egypt. The uh, pre-revolution Egyptian government of Hosni Mubarak shied away, to say the least, from dealing with Hamas. That's absolutely right. In fact, Hisham Kandel was the first high-ranking Egyptian official to visit the Gaza Strip since 2007 when Hamas took over. Uh, there were two sides to this trip today that are really worth noting. In practical terms, the visit was something of a failure. Going in, there was some hope that as Kandel entered the Gaza Strip, we might be looking at the beginning of a ceasefire. The timeline is a little, little unclear, but needless to say, both sides took turns firing even as Kandel was there. So that took the prospect of a ceasefire off the table. Now, if you look at the symbolic, this was something of, of a success, I would say. There's an image that's being widely disseminated in Egypt, and I'm sure broadly in the Arab world right now. It's a picture of Hisham Kandel and the Hamas leader Ismail Haniya. They're together holding the body of a Palestinian toddler, a little boy who was reported killed in an Israeli airstrike. That picture telegraphed a lot to the Palestinian people about Egypt's support. Uh, in this case, a picture worth many more than a thousand words. Now, are people in Egypt firmly behind the Hamas government in Gaza? Um, is there any talk from the Muslim Brotherhood, perhaps, of repealing the peace treaty with Israel? There are a couple of levels of support within the Egyptian people. Overwhelmingly popular support is behind the Palestinian cause. Now that runs the gamut from a sort of militant strain of thinking, which I would say is a minority in Egypt. Then there's the academic perspective, which looks at both sides and sort of sighs heavily. But the majority of Egyptian people feel a real emotional pull toward the Palestinian cause, if not toward Hamas. And so much of this groundswell of support within Egypt comes from a place I I think of, of real emotional longing and emotional support for the Palestinians. The uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi's government are in a, a bit of a tough spot. W what are the real options now for Egypt? I mean, militarily, they can't risk confrontation with Israel. Where do they go from here, do you think? Well, that's right. E Egypt in no way wants to get drawn militarily into a broader fight. What we've heard today, what I've heard today, both from sources off the record and from analysts, is that Mohamed Morsi is negotiating frantically behind closed doors, trying to find some way to broker a truce. He's trying not to telegraph that he is entirely on the side of Hamas aggression, but he's also come out and condemned Israel, which is what Egyptians sort of want him to do. So in some ways, he's played both sides of the field, and he's played both sides of the field pretty successfully so far. Reporter Noel King in Cairo. And you can see the photo Noel mentioned of the Hamas leader and Egyptian prime minister holding a boy killed by an airstrike. It's at theworld.org. Beyond the flying rockets and missiles, there's also a social media war playing out between Hamas and the Israeli military. Both sides are using Twitter to score rhetorical points. One tweet sent out by the Israel Defense Forces asked users to retweet if they agree that Israel has the right to self-defense. Hamas's Al-Qassam brigades responded with a tweet declaring that Israelis have opened the gates of hell on themselves. Keeping tabs on who's winning this social media war isn't easy. Orit Perlov is with the Institute for National Security Studies in Israel. She says it's not about throwing rhetoric from one side to the other. It's about young people having conversations. They have the ability now. They have the tools to talk to each other. We know 
the borders are not important, and there is huge conversations taking place around what's happening now. And unfortunately, I have to say, Israeli are not part of them. And is the conversation in Arabic different from the conversation that we see in English? Yeah, 100%. How so? Uh, first of all, many more Arabic users speaking in Arabic, talking in, you know, in Twitter. Considering that the conversation, as you're talking about, is much more voluminous uh, on the pro-Palestinian side, you know, so what? what? What is the point of that? Where does that lead? By the way, I didn't say the pro-Palestinians. You know, it's funny if I can, like, give you in trends what I can see. One thing that I can see that I didn't see before is that all sides want to, like, immediately out of this uh, aggression. I can give you, like, Egyptians, Gaza, West Bank, whatever, Jordania, everybody wants it to stop. Nobody wants more, you know, escalation. That's one thing that I can assure you. Arabic, Twitter, you know, English, Twitter, everything. So, and it's young people, and you would expect them to be a little bit more populist, but they're not. You know, that's really interesting, because we're looking at the official Twitter feeds. We're not, well, I'll speak for myself, I'm not seeing so much of this conversation. What I'm seeing are official statements, and certainly the official statements are incredibly belligerent. I know, but this is exactly... This is the difference. When you have, like, official statements, it's more of the institution. It's the country. It's the government. It's the, you know, it's the parties. But it's not the people. What separates Twitter maybe from the television, official, other official media account, it's giving a, a huge platform, you know, for the society to speak out. Orit Perlov is with the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. Orit, thank you. Thank you. Get live updates on the Israel-Hamas conflict from our partners at the BBC through the weekend at theworld.org. And follow the world's Matthew Bell on Twitter for the latest on what he's seeing in Israel. He's at Matthew J. Bell. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Spain's top soccer teams, Real Madrid and FC Barcelona, have millions of fans around the world and hundreds of millions of dollars in annual revenue. Then there's poor little Real Oviedo. The former top-tier Spanish soccer team has fallen on hard times. The current owner has been charged with tax evasion and is missing. The players revolted after not getting paid. And Real Oviedo's debts were so high that the club's very existence was under serious threat. Then Sid Lowe had an idea. Lowe is a sports journalist based in Madrid for London's Guardian newspaper, and he's the man behind a Twitter campaign to save the team. Sid Lowe, why? Why did you care about uh, such a sad team? The first place I lived in Spain as a student back in 1996 was Oviedo, and at that stage they were a first division team who I went to watch regularly and and, and became a supporter simply through that closeness, geographical closeness, and and then developed an affinity for them. But the team now risks uh, dissolving altogether, so what did you do? Well, 
essentially the club's way out of trouble was to begin a share issue to try and bring new shareholders and obviously with the new money into the club and essentially I started to promote that campaign for people to buy shares and to do it through Twitter to do it through social media and the whole thing snowballed and with every question and answer and response and follow-up question it got bigger and bigger and created a degree of interest in the club that I think in truth none of us could ever have expected. This isn't entirely unprecedented. The American football team here, the Green Bay Packers, did something similar, raised a pile of money and saved their team. But that was, you know, rabid fans living in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You have gotten money now, or your campaign has gotten money from all over the world, thanks to Twitter. Did you expect that to happen? No, I didn't. It's been absolutely astonishing. Um, I think what certainly is true is that this campaign to try and help Rail or other has benefited enormously from three particular men. And they are a guy called Michu, a guy called Juan Mata, and a guy called Santi Cazola. The three of, of course, are all Premier League players in the English League. Because otherwise, you're saying to people, come and help this club you've never heard of. Whereas if you can say to people, come and help the club that gave you the player you most like to see play, I think really gives it a relevance and a power that it simply wouldn't have had otherwise. Well, and you've also gotten responses from fans all over the world, including here in the United States. Uh, can you tell us a story? There was one from, I think it was Oregon. There's a collection of fans in Portland who got together and said, OK, we're going to get together. We're going to try and encourage our friends to join on board. And we're going to buy shares in Real Oviedo. And one of them promised that if they reach a certain amount of shares, she promised that if we reach this, I will get Real Oviedo's shield, their emblem, tattooed on my body. And, of course, this encouraged her friends that, wow, this is really great. It becomes a challenge then. It becomes something that, that, that people can, can kind of see a tangible goal. And, indeed, they did raise that number of shares. In fact, they went flying past that figure and raised an enormous amount, I think something like 450 shares in total. They've raised a huge amount of money. That kind of image, I mean, quite literally in this case, that kind of image, has, I think, really helped to get people interested. It's, it's, it's really provoked people's imagination and, and really made people think, wow, this is kind of different. Well, listen, uh, Sid Lowe, tell us, what is the hashtag? How do people get involved? The hashtag is SOS Rail Oviedo. And we will have links on our website, theworld.org. Sid Lowe, a sports journalist based in Madrid for London's Guardian newspaper, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The Swedish furniture giant IKEA today issued an apology that was a long time in coming. IKEA said it deeply regrets that some of its suppliers in the 1980s used the labor of political prisoners in East Germany. Apparently, this happened right up until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The BBC's Steve Evans is following the story in Berlin. And Steve, IKEA had hired the firm Ernst & Young to investigate the matter. What did their report say exactly? Well, their report said that these contracts that IKEA had with the East German government were fulfilled at least partly by political prisoners, people kept in Stasi prisons in pretty awful conditions were doing work for IKEA, either in workshops in the prison or taken to prison workshops. And these prisoners have said it for more than two decades now. One guy I talked to, for example, today said that he'd spent 20 months in a Stasi prison, basically for getting in contact with Amnesty International, and then he got to the West. And a pal of his said, come on, we'll go shopping. And he went round IKEA and he recognised some of the stuff. So these allegations have been bubbling over and they 
finally, IKEA said, OK, we'll get in this big outside firm of accountants to investigate. And lo and behold, the accountants said, yep. Furthermore, IKEA knew way back in the 80s that political prisoners were being used. IKEA's defence was, well, we knew and we got in touch with East German authorities and we said, please stop, and they didn't, and we didn't have the controls in place. To which some of the prisoners say, well, you should have found out a bit more and you should have actually cancelled contracts. Maybe pushed harder. Absolutely. That's what they say. So now uh, the report is out. IKEA is saying mea culpa. We didn't know or we, we tried to change things. And yet the report is still controversial. Why is that? Well, some of the people say that there should be compensation. Some of the prisoners at the press conference said, look, I just want IKEA to recognize what they did. I want them to say what they did, and I want them to say they're sorry. But there are others who say there is compensation, for example, for victims of the Nazi regime in here, so there should be compensation for victims of the communist regime. But I understand as well that other companies, mail-order companies, for one, did the same thing back then. Perhaps uh, it was just the way of doing business with East Germany. Yeah, we don't know the names of other companies that were trading in this kind of way or using, I nearly said cheap labor, I mean very cheap labor, wageless labor. But the prisoners say it wasn't just IKEA stuff that they were making. And some of the people in their group say, well, let's draw lessons for today. They think that, for example, Cuba certainly has had a role in this in the past. And they say, let's investigate more what the conditions in Chinese manufacturers are, for example. Are Chinese political prisoners being used for this kind of labour? So what may have changed, I suppose, is that maybe in the 80s there wasn't this focus on labour standards. We bought the stuff, we liked the price, and we didn't really think very much about it. Maybe that's changed, and maybe companies know that pictures of poor kids or Stasi prisoners on the TV and on the radio doesn't do them any good. The BBC's Steve Evans in Berlin. Steve, thank you. You're very welcome. For today's GeoQuiz, we want you to name a European architectural gem, the majestic Gothic Cathedral in Milan, Italy. It's the sort of building you don't forget once you've seen it up close. The cathedral has more than 135 spires at the top of it. It's surrounded by 3,500 statues. So it's known all over the world. The tallest spire is topped by a golden statue of the Madonna. Visitors who climb to the roof can look at all the spires up close, and on a clear day they can see the Alps from there too. We'll tell you about an ingenious scheme to renovate this marble treasure when we come back with the name of Milan's cathedral later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, Burmese students prepare for President Obama's visit next week. And later, an American bluegrass band throws a hoedown in Pakistan. When we showed up, we arrived to an audience of very excited and enthusiastic women who were yelling like we were the Rolling Stones. Those stories ahead on The World. 
ERI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups like the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. And by PBS, presenting The Dust Bowl, a new film from director Ken Burns. Starts Sunday at 8, 7 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Next week, President Obama is set to make history. He'll visit the Southeast Asian country of Myanmar, the first U.S. president to do that. The country, also known as Burma, has made big strides in reform in the past two years. It's lifted press restrictions, released hundreds of political prisoners, and improved relations with the West. Reporter Becky Palmstrom visited with some young people in Yangon, who took part in a mock election for U.S. president. When Americans went to the polls last week, several thousand miles away on the lawn at Yangon's American Center, smiling students handed out stickers that said, I voted. When students come here, they are uh, touched with the story, you know, um, like democratic story, and, uh, you know, the advantages, the benefits of being in a democratic society. Kind saw Mint studies English at the American Center. Like many here, he voted for Obama in the mock election. It's not just that students here are passionate about America, he says. They were voting to learn how democracy works. The reason that they very or they were very interested in this elections is because, you know, what is happening in the United States is reflecting the environment in here. It's, it's going to happen in our country. You know, we're going to feel it. Myanmar is starting to feel it. After decades of military rule, the country held one of its first elections in 2010. Democratic reforms followed, and now the U.S. president is on his way. With that, firstly, I would say I'm so proud of being a Burmese citizen because, like, you know, this is the first time the U.S. president is visiting. 19-year-old Bilal played the role of Obama in the mock election. This is, I would say, the greatest opportunity you know, to promote our country, to promote our country, even, you know, who are we? What are we? How are we surviving here? This new direction comes after years of isolation from the West. It also comes amid growing antipathy towards China's economic dominance. Myanmar wants a new foreign policy and new economic partners, says Kainsaw Mint. And also at the same time, we are not breaking up the relationship with China, So we mean, which means that we have two friends, right? So which means we have choices to make. Religious chants blast from a battered stereo in an effort to drum up donations for a nearby Buddhist monastery. A newspaper vendor has run out of papers with Obama's face on the front. The vendor has kept one copy of the newspaper for himself. Because America is really developed and the number one country in the world, for me, in my opinion, I think Obama can support political and economic changes for Myanmar. On the other side of the Irrawaddy River is the village of Dala. It's poorer than Yangon. Most of Myanmar's population are farmers and laborers, scraping out a living in villages. I meet a trishaw driver named Uso Tu. It's not that people aren't interested in Obama's visit, but everyday life is more important. Earning money and surviving is more important. 
Still, another trishaw driver has high hopes for the president's visit. He's saying that because Obama comes from the greatest country in the world, things will change 100%. For activists like Mo Tui, that change is long overdue. He currently faces up to 10 years in jail for organizing a youth peace protest without a permit. Uh, it's a good thing that you have a good relation with Bami's government, but uh, he shouldn't ignore and he shouldn't forget there are still many human rights violations against the Bami's people by the Bami's government. At Yangon's American Center, the Bami's Barack Obama won big in last week's mock election. Bilal, the mock Obama, found the whole thing inspiring. So you want to be the president of Myanmar one day? Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I wish uh, if I have a chance. If my, if my friends are ready to give me the vote. <laughs> okay. we vote. For the world in Yangon, I'm Becky Palmstrom. Our coverage of Myanmar and its gradual opening to the world continues online. The world's Mary Kay Magstad recently traveled to Myanmar, returning to the country for the first time in 17 years for a special series of reports. You can hear them and see some great photos from her trip at theworld.org. We're going to talk about maps now, and yes, you'll be able to see them all at theworld.org. Frank Jacobs has been obsessed with maps since he was a kid. He lives in London, and his blog, Strange Maps, has a lot of, well, really cool maps, like the one that caught our eye initially. It's a map of the U.S. where each state name has been replaced with the name of the country whose gross domestic product matches that state's economic output. So California is now France. Texas is Canada, and Massachusetts, where I am now, that's Belgium. Frank, uh, what was the thinking behind this particular map? The thinking behind the map was to demonstrate visually the size of the American economy. We often hear stories about the decline of the American economy, about China catching up, about America diminishing economically. But by showing how big the economy of each state is compared to the economy of independent countries... As you say, California is one of the biggest economies in the world per se, which is nice to know. But if you can actually replace the name of California by the name of France, it becomes a very, very direct and and visual illustration of that fact. Yeah, the map, of course, doesn't just include the big states. There are smaller ones, too. Wyoming, for example, is Uzbekistan. Um, We also have Vermont and South Dakota. The economy of Vermont is about the size of the economy of uh, the Dominican Republic. And South Dakota equals Croatia, which is something of a surprise, I I suppose, to most South Dakotans and most Croatians. Two groups of people that don't normally uh, think about one another. I suppose not, no. There's another map of the United States that is my personal favorite. It's called the McFarthest Place. Uh, Describe that for our listeners, if you would. Well, it's a map that pinpoints the location of every single McDonald's restaurant uh, in the lower 48 states. In doing so gives you a kind of a a density map of McDonald's restaurants. And obviously there is this one place in that whole territory, which is the McFarthest place from any McDonald's restaurant. I think it's somewhere in South Dakota, and I'm I'm not quite sure about the distance, but it's about 90 to 100 miles to the nearest McDonald's restaurant. How do they survive? 
I have no idea. Maybe they grow their own food. Frank, you're not a cartographer yourself. You're just a map collector. Where do you get all these uh, kooky, interesting, different maps? Most of them are floating around on the Internet, and a lot of them get sent in by people who read my blog. And when they come across a strange map, they think of the blog called Strange Maps and are kind enough to send it in. And, and what's your fascination with maps? Well, it's, it's something that I've had for a long time. As, as a kid, I used to read atlases for fun, and I used to think this was a strange affliction because none of my friends shared that affliction. But in running the blog, I've found out that uh, I'm not alone. There's many of us. Do, do you find yourself um, increasingly strange in, in this era of uh, GPS? I also happen to like maps, and, and I find that most of my peers don't use them anymore. No, I think we're at a point now that is comparable to the 19th century with the onset of photography, where painting got a whole different meaning and a whole different uh, sense of, of, of itself. When photography came in and made it possible to reproduce images without painting them, that's when the actual paintings themselves became surrealist and, and impressionist and expressionist. So I think the same thing is happening now with maps as well. We have the maps as a purely utilitarian instrument, on our phones, but the map as a form of expression is now divorced from the actual meaning that it has to have. So there's so many other things that you can do with maps nowadays. Yeah, it, it bears pointing out your blog is called Strange Maps, but some of them are really quite beautiful. Well, that's, that's one of my criteria for publishing a map on Strange Maps. It has to be strange. There has to be some weird angle to it. It has to have a story, but it also needs to be pretty. It needs to be beautiful. Frank Jacobs' blog is called Strange Maps. You can link to it and see all the maps we've talked about, plus many more at theworld.org. Frank Jacobs, thank you so much. Thank you. For some climate scientists, the most horrifying part of Hurricane Sandy last month wasn't the storm itself. It was how climate change in the Arctic may have helped shape the storm into something unprecedented. Sam Eaton has our story. It's part of our partnership with the PBS program NOVA. David Robinson knows just about everything there is to know about climate change, but starting a borrowed chainsaw is another thing altogether. This isn't going to start. Once he does get it started, he and his son set to work cutting up a giant oak tree that fell in his son's yard during Hurricane Sandy. Robinson says these days chainsaws are one of the most common sounds around this part of New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey, and my over 50 years in this state, nothing had come close to this in terms of the tree damage. Not to mention the scores of deaths across the region and a price tag running into the tens of billions of dollars. But Robinson says things could have been much worse. If Hurricane Sandy's winds had been just 20 miles per hour stronger, he says parts of New Jersey would have been without power for months. Your entire electric grid would have to be rebuilt. Robinson's concern is more than that of the average New Jersey resident. He's the state climatologist. And he says increasingly extreme weather all across the world is testing the ability for even the richest nations to recover. Here in New Jersey, he says the weather isn't just breaking records. It's blowing right past them. We've had... 21 straight months of above-average temperatures, and then we've seen major storms. Climate scientists avoid blaming any single weather event on global warming, but many say that climate change may well have played an important role in Sandy's destruction, as well as other recent extreme weather events. 
It's not just that it's contributing to rising sea levels and warmer ocean temperatures off the Northeast. There's also growing evidence that weather in places like the United States is being affected by rapid warming far to the north in the Arctic. One reason for that, says climatologist Jennifer Francis at New Jersey's Rutgers University, is that warming in the Arctic may be altering the jet stream, which carries weather patterns across the northern hemisphere. Francis says the jet stream is largely created by the temperature differences between the Arctic and areas farther south. So if you warm the Arctic more than areas farther south, which is what's happening, then the jet stream should be weaker because that temperature difference is smaller. And that's exactly what we see. Francis pulls up a time-lapse animation of the jet stream on her computer. It starts out showing waves of air moving quickly across North America. But then there's this period where the waves get much bigger. It's totally different. So that's the idea is that we're moving toward an increased tendency for the jet stream to get into these big wavy patterns that tend to move more slowly. And so the weather that's associated with them, either the storms or the high pressure areas, whatever it is, are going to stick around longer at a given location. That means there's a much greater chance of ordinary weather turning into extreme events like last summer's drought and heat wave in the American Midwest or last winter's cold snap that killed more than 800 people in Europe. You can look at almost any extreme event of the type that I described, look at the atmospheric pattern that was associated with it, and almost every single time it's because there was one of these big swings in the jet stream. Hurricane Sandy was no different. Cold Arctic air coming from one of these large dips in the jet stream to the west strengthened the storm, while a huge high-pressure system to the north blocked Sandy's movement over the Atlantic and drove it directly into the east coast. Francis co-authored a study on these kinds of changes in a peer-reviewed journal last spring, before the summer's record Arctic meltdown and before Sandy. But the science hasn't yet been widely accepted. Gavin Schmidt with NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York is among the climate scientists who aren't yet convinced of Arctic warming's effect on the jet stream. It's a very rich system, and we can find patterns in rich systems all the time. And they lead us into lots of interesting pathways for research. But, you know, for every 20 patterns that we think we see in a very complicated, noisy flow, only one of them is actually going to turn out to be something that we can use for predictions. Schmidt says findings like Francis's need to be plugged into climate models and compared to other results. He says it's too early in the game to know whether there's really a cause and effect link between the warming Arctic and weird weather to the south. Even so, Schmidt says there's definitely something funky going on. The funky thing that's going on is that we're increasing the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere beyond what they've been in 800,000 years, maybe millions of years, right? That's a huge perturbation to the system. But figuring out how exactly these complex systems are reacting to that disturbance takes time. It's a challenge Jennifer Francis is well aware of. She took me to a beach down the road from her home near Buzzards Bay in Massachusetts. To see where the water came up to and the hurricane right up to the edge of the building. This area was spared the deadly tidal surge that wiped out so much of New York and New Jersey. But Sandy still left its mark here. Today, though, the same jet stream that shot Sandy into the east coast is now bringing clear skies and unseasonably warm temperatures from the northwest. It's the good weather side of, of the waves in the jet stream. It's interesting because you're studying these effects but also witnessing them firsthand up here right on the water. 
there's a lot of realism to what's happening today, and I think I'm not the only one that's sensing that. This is something that's happening before our very eyes, and the fact that there's this link to a place so far away, and you know, the Arctic is, people don't think of it being relevant to them, but in fact, it, it really is. The trick for scientists like herself is teasing out just how powerful those changes in the Arctic are becoming and how likely they are to contribute to more events like Sandy or worse in the years ahead. For Nova and the world, I'm Sam Eaton. Inside the Megastorm is on Nova this Sunday on PBS. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Back to the 14th century Gothic cathedral we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz. It's the Duomo Cathedral in Milan, Italy. Some say it's the most beautiful Gothic building in all of Europe. That's open to debate, but what's certain is that the church took centuries to build and that it requires constant maintenance. Right now, Milan's biggest landmark is in need of some renovation and a major cleaning. Air pollution and foggy weather have taken their toll on the white marble, so cathedral authorities have come up with a clever way to hopefully raise $30 million for the renovation. They've launched an Adopt a Spire campaign. To adopt a spire, you can simply give a contribution. The minimum is 100,000 euros. And you can have your name, the name of your family, written at the basis of the spire for the eternity. That's Angelo Caloia, president of the Duomo Cathedral of Milan, and 100,000 euros is about $125,000. But Caloia says some of the building's 135 spires are more desirable than others. Obviously, if you want to donate more, you are entitled to a spire which is nearer to the Madonna, the Madonnina. The Golden Madonna stands 350 feet atop the cathedral's main spire. It looks down on the 5 million tourists who visit each year. Many climb up to the roof, where on a clear day, Caloia says you can see all the way to the Alps. Ah, you you cannot imagine how wonderful the view, especially on the sunset, you can see the Alps the panorama of Milan and surrounding towns is a real uh, marvelous view. The Adopt a Spire campaign is just getting off the ground. Contributions have come in for eight spires so far. The spires representing the human virtues of wisdom, justice, strength, and temperance are not yet taken. Mark Twain, if he were around today, might have considered adopting a spire. When he visited the Duomo in his day, he was told it was second only to Rome, St. Peter's Basilica. But Twain wrote, I cannot understand how it can be second to anything made by human hands. As for more affordable options, remember the spires go for $125,000 each. Caloia says the Duomo may consider putting its gargoyles up for adoption, too. For today's global hit, some music we don't often hear on this program, bluegrass. One, two, three. The band Della May features five skilled musicians, all women, steeped in America's bluegrass tradition. I'm Courtney Hartman. I'm from Loveland, Colorado. I'm Celia Woodsmith from Norwich, Vermont. Shelby Means from Laramie, Wyoming. Jenny Lynn Gardner from Conway, South Carolina. I'm Kimber Ludiker from Spokane, Washington. Now, all of you are from all around the United States, but you're speaking to us now from the U.S. consulate in Lahore, Pakistan. How did that happen? How is a bluegrass <laughs> band 
in Lahore, Pakistan? Well, um, we applied for this incredible State Department program. It puts on American music abroad. We auditioned, and amazingly enough, we were accepted into the program. And it's musical diplomacy in action. It's us getting to meet people on the most basic level. And uh, did you guys do anything specific to prepare for the, the concerts around the country? A big part of the program is education. So part of our audition was to look at an audience and say they don't necessarily speak English and they might be from ages five to adults. And we were supposed to give them something to take away of our American culture and music. Well, we have some audio of your first concert in Islamabad, um, Pakistan. We would like to send this next song out to all the ladies here from the Islamabad Girls College. And we're excited to have you here. Yeah, no, uh, bluegrass music is mostly played, um, well, by men. Uh, but it, it also is mostly played by, by people who have real lives and real jobs, um, kind of as something, something fun to do. So it's not like a formal thing. If you hear something you like, you can yell and scream and yee-haw and whistle and all that kind of stuff. So we like free. to know you're out there. Yeah. <laughs> so what'd you think there looking out at that very good looking audience? It was really um inspiring and almost overwhelming the first night. When we showed up after having only been in Pakistan for about four hours, we arrived to an audience of very excited and enthusiastic women who were yelling like we were the Rolling Stones. We were blown away, and and for the whole concert, they were completely attentive and so enthusiastic. We felt so much love from them from the very first minute we were there. You're still on the road, as you said, for five weeks. You're off to uh, the other stands. How has the State Department prepared you for the trip? The State Department and American Music Abroad has actually given us a, a tour manager, which is pretty cool. And We've gotten coaching from them. We have a translator. We have embassies across Central Asia who have been preparing programs for us. And we're, we're excited. Mm. Five more weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> From the U.S. Consulate in Lahore, Pakistan, the five members of Dela May. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You can see photos and a video of Dela May in concert, plus links to their homepage at theworld.org. Rona left when she was only 16. She gave no reason but needed a fly. She joined up with the traveling band and Lady Luck, she took her hand. Left all her demons behind She wove her unabashed story All through the South Rona, she carried the truth of a child She was a gypsy queen Her hair a raven sheen She made love so strong and wild Now they're bringing her home Sweet Rona
Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great weekend. Kept all the postcards that she sent to me. Passed our way only once more when Mama died. She stood just outside the church, but she was gone when I ran out the door. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, Supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI, Public Radio International.